The wages of sin is death. So Paul wrote to the church at Rome, we all know what a wage is, a payment received for labor rendered. And we expect to gain profit from the work that we do in this life on a regular basis, but that's not the kind of wage the Apostle Paul was talking about. He's talking about the just payment for all the sins that we've committed in our life. For them, we deserve something. We deserve death. We deserve death physically, spiritually, and eternally for the countless acts of disobedience which we've committed against a just and holy God. We sin because we're sinners, and we sin, uh, and we are sinners because we sin. And the origin of this horrible truth among mankind, including you and me, is described for us in Genesis chapter 3, as we read earlier this morning. The first man, Adam, had only one commandment to keep in the garden. We read that back in chapter 2, verse 16, as God spoke to him, The Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may eat freely, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And what God was saying there uh, was that if Adam disobeyed him, the result of that would be death. God gave this commandment to test the, the trust of Adam to see if he would obey him on that one account. And Adam and his wife had no reason to eat from this particular tree. The Lord had bountifully provided for them all kinds of wonderful things to eat and to sustain themselves. Uh, His intention for them was to enjoy life in the garden by tending it, by communing with their God, filling the earth with more human life, living in perfect Harmony with the environment in which God placed them. But we have seen in our study that all this ended when a subtle creature controlled by Satan entered the garden and deceived the woman. He caused her to doubt the word of God, to disparage the goodness of God, and deny the righteous justice of God. She believed the lie that if she ate of that fruit, she would be her own God. She'd be able to choose good and evil for herself. So she looked upon it, she desired it, she coveted it, and then she ate of it. And she quickly convinced her husband to do the same thing. In that moment of disobedience, they both fully understood the wages of sin is death. They were no longer innocent, without sin, ignorant of evil, and they immediately felt the sting and guilt of shame that comes from disobeying God. They now feared him and sought to hide from his presence. Sin and disobedience always come with consequences. We always have to pay the price. This narrative describes for us the just punishment that came as a result of the first act of disobedience. And we find from these verses that sinners must confess their sins rather than excuse them. That God declares the consequences of sin and its prospects for sinners, but also that God is gracious in his provision for them. 
So let's take a look at what God has to say about this issue of the wages of sin this morning. Heavenly Father, we pray as we look into your word today that you will bless us. Lord, give us the understanding of it and help us to realize, Lord, that as sinners, we owe a debt of sin to you, a debt that we cannot pay, a debt that we have to depend upon your mercy and your grace to forgive us. And Lord, as we look at the first couple and how they responded to your only commandment, we see ourselves. Lord, uh, many times over and over, we have committed sin by disobeying your word. Lord, help us to be thankful. Help us to realize how important it is to confess our sins. First of all, to come to you as our Savior. But Lord, also each day, as we realize our sin, to confess it before you, that we might stay in right relationship to you. Bless your word to us today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I apologize this morning, you don't have an outline in your bulletin, so I'll try to uh, uh, enumerate this a little bit better for you than perhaps I normally do. The first thing we're going to look at from this passage this morning is uh, verses 7 through 13, and here we see that the Lord calls sinners to confess their sins, not to excuse them. When the first couple became aware of their transgression, what did they do? Well, we find that first of all, the first couple attempted to hide from God. We see this in verses 7 and 8. Back up in verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So when their eyes were opened, as Satan said they would be, to good and evil, they realized uh, that they were naked, and they tried to cover that nakedness. Now, prior to this state, this was all normal to them. Uh, And now, all of a sudden, a sense of shame and guilt came flooding upon them. They became aware of their differences, and they tried to hide their bodies from each other and from God who created them. And instead of sensing the good and the becoming uh, godlike that Satan promised, they now were tainted by evil that affected their thinking, affected their mind, their sensibilities, and the image of God in which they were created became marred. It wasn't removed, but it was marred with sin. So when they heard the Lord God in the garden, they hid from his presence. Now, the first thing they try to do is hide their nakedness. They did that in a very insufficient way. Now they hear God in the garden. They don't want to see him. Uh, They want to hide from them. And they heard the sound of him or the voice of him in the garden. They didn't see a figure of God, but they knew he was there. The verb to walk here means uh, to simply move about somewhere. So they detect the Lord is present in the garden. They could hear him moving about. They could hear him calling out to them, searching for them. 
But instead of coming to the Lord, they hid themselves. Now, the phrase here, the cool of the day, is not so much a reference to the time of the day, but the presence of the Lord, because it literally means wind or spirit. And God uh, is symbolized by wind or spirit, if you will. And so again, this further detects God's presence among them in the garden, and they understood fully that the Lord was there. The Lord came to see them. The Lord came to inquire, but they were afraid again to come to him. And now recognizing their disobedience and the, the, the guilt of the, and the shame of that, they had a sense of foreboding and imminent judgment. They knew they were in trouble. They feared uh, what God was going to do to them. And Adam expresses this fear down in verse 10. I was afraid because I was naked. That nakedness indicating his disobedience. And this truth is now descriptive of all humanity, you and me as well. We try to hide our sin from God. I don't know about you, but uh, most little children... uh, don't they sometimes run away when they know they're in trouble? They try to hide someplace to get away from their parents because they know uh, that uh, they're probably going to get punished. And this is where that all begins, our desire not to fess up to what we've done, but to try to get away with it somehow, away from it somehow. So without even thinking about it, we try to hide from God. And one of the most difficult things when you're trying to witness to somebody and uh, convey to them the love of God uh, is to get them to recognize their sinful condition and admit they are sinners before a just and holy God. And they'll make all kinds of excuses or compare themselves with other people. And all the while, it's really trying to hide your own condition before God. We try to cover our sense of guilt and shame when we know we do something wrong. We don't know always what to do with those feelings, so we kind of shove them off, we ignore them, we try not to think about it. And sometimes we think that, well, if I do something good, that'll make me feel better, it'll help me overcome these feelings of guilt that I'm experiencing. And it's now human nature to hide sin and uh, run from God rather than confess your sin and uh, uh, come to God. So, that's the first issue we deal with here. Adam and Eve try to hide their condition before God. Now, we come down to verse 9. We see that God confronted the first couple so they would confess their sin, but they made excuses for it. God always wants us to confess our sin, to see us the way we truly are in order for him to forgive us our sins. But if we make excuses, he can't do that. First of all, God confronts the man. He confronts Adam. In verse 9, the Lord says, Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? Well, note that the Lord calls to Adam first. Adam is the leader. Adam's the one that was created first. So he's the one that God approaches first. 
And the verb to call here is similar to the verb to summon. Unfortunately, sometimes we might receive a summons to appear before a court of law. Uh, And we really should try to get out of that summons or we're going to be in trouble. And in a sense, God was summoning Adam to meet with him to find out what was going on and to render a judgment. And when he says, where are you? That's a rhetorical question. Doesn't really expect an answer because God knew where Adam was. And Adam's response isn't, well, I'm over here, Lord. Uh, Adam's response indicates this, uh, uh, that this is a rhetorical question because his response is, well, I hid from you, yada, yada. He is expressing his fear of meeting God. He was afraid because his awareness of his nakedness was the result of receiving the knowledge that was forbidden to him. And the purpose of God in giving out that, that question is to get him to tell the truth to confess his disobedience. God says, well, who told you that you were naked? Again, a rhetorical question. God understands what that is. But the real point of this comes in the next question. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? God is focusing on the command that was broken, a direct statement given to him and then conveyed to Eve as well. And the word order of the sentence emphasizes the act of disobeying uh, that command. And it goes like this. Did you from the tree, which I command you not to eat of, eat? So the Lord is stressing the command and asking Adam if he broke the command, confess your sin. Tell me what you did. Well, at this point, what does Adam do? Adam attempts to minimize his action by averting attention to his wife. Here's his response. Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree. It's the woman's fault. She's the one who listened to the serpent. She's the one who ate. It's not really as much my problem and my fault as it is the woman. Now, how quickly... Adam's attitude changed toward the woman that God gave to him. The woman whom he needed for a close companion. The woman whom God had graciously made from his own body to meet that need. The woman who he exclaimed was now flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone who was a great source of joy to him when he first saw her, like saying, wow, this is great. All of a sudden, she's viewed as a source of his sin. Now, ladies, how would you feel if you were in Eve's position? Thanks, Adam, appreciate it. But even worse, 
That's not the worst of it, is it? Who does God, or excuse me, who does Adam ultimately blame here? God, you're the one who made the woman, so you're the one who really caused this whole issue. That's pretty bad, isn't it? The woman whom you gave to be with me. God's now the one who's guilty of evil as Adam attempts to shift the blame from himself to someone else. And really, when we compare ourselves to others, we're kind of doing the same thing because God made all of us. All of us are sinners. All of us do what is wrong before a just and holy God, and we can't blame God for that, although sometimes we might try. Well, God deals with Adam. Now he's got to deal with a woman because Adam's pointing a finger at her. Verse 13, And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? What in the world have you done? Do you realize the consequences of this action? So he confronts her. And again, God wants them to confess the truth, not to make excuses, but here we go again. The woman said, The serpent deceived me. Now, is that true? Sure it is. The serpent beguiled me. He tricked me into doing this. The devil made me do it. Ever heard that excuse today? Sometimes people use that excuse kind of in a joking way. Well, the devil made me do it, so I'm not really responsible. It doesn't work that way, though, does it? No. No. You can try to blame the devil, but being deceived into doing something wrong does not excuse your action. It doesn't remove your culpability. Even though you may have been tricked or deceived, you still did the wrong thing. We often play the same type of game today, don't we? It's much easier for us to make excuses to justify ourselves, to pass the buck, to minimize our sin, or feel we're not as bad as the other people are. They do worse things than I do, so I'm okay. Well, we need to confess our sins, not make excuses for them. And in that way, we can seek God's forgiveness. Well, finally, when it comes down to the the last statement that they make, Although they've pointed the finger at somebody else, although they blamed the devil, although they blamed someone else, it does come down to that statement of confession, those two words, I ate. And when they said, I ate, that's where God was heading. That's the confession of a specific sin, of a specific word of God or commandment of God that I have broken. It doesn't matter what it is. Adam and Eve only had one then. We've got at least 10 today in which every single sin in the world probably could fit, don't we? And uh, if we really thought hard about it, we probably have committed a sin in every single area. <clears throat> we've lied. We've disobeyed our parents. We've coveted things. We haven't worshiped God every day of our lives. We haven't obeyed his word Over and over it goes. There are things that we have done that are wrong before God. And God wants us to confess them so we can get right with him instead of excuse them and slough them off as though they don't really matter. So, sin has been committed. 
And sin has a wage. It has a consequence. And so here we see God declaring to the couple the consequences of their sin. In verses 14 through 19, God goes in reverse order. First of all, he deals with the serpent. Then he deals with a woman. Then he deals with a man. So let's see what God says about these consequences. First of all, there is a curse placed upon the serpent. Verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. The fall inaugurated a perpetual struggle between good and evil. And when God addresses the serpent, there is no question to solicit a confession from the serpent. The Lord knows the figurehead behind this action, this deception, and he is now going to declare his judgment upon the serpent. And remember, the serpent and Satan are very closely related. The first aspect of the curse that we just read is primarily physical related to the animal kingdom and and literal snakes or serpents, if you will. He says, you're cursed more than all cattle. The cattle are the domesticated animals. We know that the serpent was a wild animal. And when Adam fell, the world fell with him. The earth fell with him. The effect of his sin came upon the animal kingdom, which would receive the curse of suffering and death associated with life outside the garden that we'll see a little later. But the the curse upon the serpent is, is greater than the general curse that comes upon the animal kingdom. And this can be taken in a comparative way. In other words, compared to the effects of this upon the animal kingdom, the effect upon you is somehow greater. It also could be separative in a sense of the idea that you're going to be isolated from all the other animals in the way the curse affects you. And as far as I can think, snakes are the only creature that literally crawl on their bellies on the earth, and that's kind of their domain. The main emphasis of this curse, though, is that of eating dust. You're going to crawl on your belly and you're going to eat dust the rest of your days. And that doesn't mean just that serpent's days, but throughout time. And this is symbolic. Eating dust is symbolic of of humility, of being brought low, of suffering defeat. Have you ever said to somebody you beat or you think you're going to be, eat my dust. That's kind of the sense of it. So that's the main emphasis of the curse that comes upon the serpent. The serpent or the snake is a perpetual reminder to us of the fall of man, but also the ultimate defeat of the spiritual power behind the tempter, behind the serpent, that, that Satan will be defeated ultimately. Now, the second aspect of the curse is primarily spiritual conflict through time. I will put enmity 
hostility, conflict between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So now we have more of a picture of that serpent Satan idea, a spirit behind what is going on here. And the placement of enmity between the snake and the woman far exceeds the sense of fear and hostility between humans and snakes in the world today. It's not just talking about that kind of a thing. <clears throat> the two seeds are indicative of offspring. What the serpent will bring forth and what the woman will bring forth through time. And there is a sense in which the seed is collective in nature. In other words, it means uh, humanity and then also the forces of good, forces of evil. There's going to be hostility and conflict between humanity and their spiritual foes. The seed of the serpent figuratively speaks of the seed of Satan working in the world. We see it today. It refers to this conf- uh, his constant efforts for evil and wickedness to prevail. His fight for the wrong to overcome the right and the evil to overcome the good, for lost people never to become saved, for the spirit of Antichrist working in the world. These are all uh, from Satan and empowered by Satan as the prince of this world. But this conflict also becomes individual in nature. In the next phrase, where it says uh, uh, it's going to be between your seed and her seed collectively, but now we're down to a personal issue. He, one product that comes from the woman, shall bruise your head, the serpent's head, standing for Satan, and you, the serpent Satan, shall bruise his head. <clears throat> now that's prophetic. That's predictive. The seed of the woman here relates to a single person. One who will have the power to crush. The word bruise there can mean crush the serpent Satan. Even though Satan will in turn bruise his heel. Now, you know as well as I do that if uh, you have a snake bite on your heel, uh, that's not as serious as getting your head bashed in. So that's what's being spoken of here. The, The person, the seed from the woman, is eventually going to crush in a fatal blow the serpent. But at the same time, the serpent is able to bruise the heel of that seed. So who do you think ultimately this is talking about? It's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ and Satan himself. <clears throat> Satan's will was for Jesus to die. He couldn't see beyond that. <clears throat> and that's exactly what happened. It appeared that Satan had a death blow delivered to the Lord Jesus Christ, but really it turned out just to be a bruising of his heel because three days later he rose from the dead. 
And when he rose from the dead, when he raised himself from the dead, he proved he had power over sin and death and evil and Satan himself. And he offered there a crushing blow to the head of Satan. Now, Satan didn't die right then, but he became the defeated foe. And someday, when Christ comes back, he'll be cast into a pit for a thousand years. He will have no power. And then from that moment in time, uh, when that uh, period ends, he'll be cast into the lake of fire. So he is ultimately a defeated foe, even today, as we're standing here. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who provided that blow to him. So the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman indicate the constant struggle going on now between good and evil, God's people and and lost people, Satan against the saints, until God's kingdom prevails in the end when Jesus comes again. So that is the curse upon the serpent Satan. Now let's see what happens about the woman in verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception and pain you shall bring forth children. That's the first aspect of the verse. And uh, you women know what that's all about. Don't really have to explain that. Um, God's intention in childbirth was not to bring forth in pain and, 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 and labor. It was to be something that would be joyful and future-looking as, as the world is provided with new people to populate it. And there wouldn't have been any pain associated with that. So the pain comes in, the painful labor literally is what it means here. And the whole process of bringing forth a child. So every time Eve now bore a child, what do you think that would remind her of? Her initial disobedience. And that pain was a result of that. Now Eve, if she lived as long as Adam, lived over nine centuries bearing children. So ladies, you've got it easy. (laughs) I don't know how many children she had. It's not recorded in scripture, but you figure it out. She had once every two or three years. That's a lot of children. But most women today have brought a baby into the world and they've experienced this truth. But how many really understand why that pain is there? It should go back to the garden that we need to confess our sins. And this is the result. We get pain from it when we don't. Now there's something else here though. Not only will this pain occur during childbirth. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. So here we have now conflict between the man and the woman replacing camaraderie and companionship. Now there's a lot of debate concerning the last part of this verse. What does your desire refer to? What does rule over you mean? Well, we know God's intent for man and woman, husband and wife uh, in the garden was for the man to take the role of of headship or leadership, the wife the role of helper, completer, counterpart. This was to be a harmonious and loving and fulfilling relationship. 
And then verse 17 indicates that this relationship was reversed when Adam listened to his wife instead of God. And as a result of disobedience, it appears that struggle for control in relationships ensues. The verb for desire here in the context seems to indicate a desire to rule or a desire to control. And Eve is now going to have a desire that will not be able to be fulfilled for dominance or control or telling her husband everything to do, henbecked husband, that kind of thing. And it's very similar to what God says in chapter 4, verse 7, which helps us with our interpretation. This is what the Lord said to Cain. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And it's same word, desire, is for you, but you shall rule over it. Same word. See what's going on there? Sin wants to pounce on you and control you, but Cain had the responsibility of controlling it, of overruling it. So the idea back in verse 16 is likely that the woman is going to want to be the controlling factor in the marriage, but the man is supposed to rule over her. And we know today how mixed up and messed up that all gets. Because the woman can have wrong relationship with her husband in trying to take control of the marriage and everything and him to do everything she wants and not listen to him, not to be in submission. But then the man can either be passive to that, which is not God's will. Also, we see this a lot today, the man can become abusive in that situation. And he can force his rule. And he can demand to be the leader. And you do what I say or what else? And we see a lot of that today in homes. So we have conflict going on in our homes today. Instead of that companionship. So this is really not conveying to us a whole lot to do with Ephesians chapter 5 where the Lord tells us in Christ, this is how your relationship is going to work out when you're filled with the Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit, you're going to have conflict. It doesn't mean that lost people can't get along and have a long married life, but there's going to be a lot of conflict. Okay, so again, the consequences of sin are not really great. Now we come to the punishment of Adam. Verse 17, then he said to Adam, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it, this is what's going to happen. So again, the Lord repeats the commandment and the disobedience to the commandment. He's been really enforcing that here. I want you to confess your sin, not to make excuses, and this is what's going to happen. Now notice that when the term curse is used, it is used for the serpent, It is used for the ground, but it is not used for the man and the woman. They are not under a permanent curse from which there is no uh, coming back. God is gracious to them. There, of course, is the curse of death 
Eventually that's going to take place, but there's also going to be a way to be forgiven and to get out from under what we would think of as a curse. So what happens to Adam? Again, twofold. Now you're going to have to toil. And notice the number of times the verb to eat is used. You disobeyed God and you ate of the fruit. You're no longer going to be able to eat freely of that fruit that God provided for you, and you didn't really have to bring it about at all anyways. But now, in order for you to eat, you're going to eat and toil, painful labor. The same thing used of the woman, painful labor for the rest of your days. And instead of great things coming out of the ground, there's going to be thorns and thistles brought forth for you. All the stuff detrimental to growth you're going to have to deal with now. Farmers imagine... Uh, every day you go out to your field and stuff just there. All you got to do is, is take to the market and, and get your profit. But you know the hard labor that's going on into it today. Even with all the uh, technology we have and how productive we can make things, wouldn't it be nice if it just was there? But that's not the way it is anymore. In the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. So instead of eating freely not really having to work all that much for it, you've got to, to, to break your back to do all that. And the second part has to do with death, returning to the ground, the dust from which you came in the first place. Adam was created out of the ground, out of dust. God created him for abundant fruit, uh, uh, for him abundant fruit that came out of that ground, which Adam did not have to labor for. And now Adam has to work the ground to get produce. He's going to have to work hard all his days, which were 930 years. Then he would return to the dust from which he had come. So paradise was lost to Adam and Eve. And today, millions upon millions of people work by the sweat of their brow to eke out a living in this world. And without Christ, what do they have forward uh, for them? What do they have to look toward in the future? Physical death, spiritual death, eternal death. The wages of sin is death. So aren't you thankful that Jesus came so that you wouldn't have to pay the wages of, of, of death. He paid them for you. He died for you on the cross of Calvary. So we learn from this passage that, first of all, you can't hide from God. You can try. <clears throat> you can try to hide your sin. You can try to make excuses. You can try, uh, try to point your finger to the other person. You can try to minimize uh, what you've done that is wrong. But someday there's going to be a judgment there's going to be accounting, and you're not going to get away from your sin because there's a just and holy God who will have to require of you eternal death. Unless, of course, you come to Christ, who paid the debt for you and who will freely forgive you if you confess your sin instead of excusing it. We also see there's going to be, and we've experienced in our own lives, a, cont a continual conflict between good and evil right and wrong, until Jesus comes again. And there are only two sides, and as we said, uh, saw here in verse 15, there are only two seeds. 
There's the seed of Christ and there's the seed of the serpent. So of which seed are you? If you're of the seed of Christ, then you're fighting on the right side. You're fighting against your flesh and the devil and the world. And uh, uh, you're going to overcome one day. But if you're caught up in the deception of Satan, and you're of the seed of Satan, from which all of us at one point were, then where you spend eternity depends upon which seed you are. And the only way to become a seed of Christ by receiving him as your Savior. And finally, as we've mentioned, God wants you to confess your sins so he can forgive you. And this applies to your initial salvation when you first come to him and you plead with him uh, to forgive you of your sin. But it also has to do with your continual relationship to Christ once you are saved. Hiding sin, ignoring sin, excusing sin never has a good outcome. The Lord will have to deal with you in your personal life. So we need to confess our sins even when we're saved so we can uh, realize the truth that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and we can have daily fellowship with God. So there it is for us. Where do you stand today? Are you forgiven or are you heading for an eternity where you will have to be judged by God? Let's pray. <clears throat> Our gracious Heavenly Father, once again, we're thankful that you show us <clears throat> where we came from, why we're sinful. It all started thousands of years ago in the Garden of Eden. Lord, uh, Adam and Eve chose to go against your will. They chose to do their own thing. All of us are guilty of that today as well. We've all sinned before you. Different kind of ways, different kind of occasions and circumstances. But Lord, in order for us to be forgiven... We have to confess that sin. We can't make excuses for it. We need to come to Christ for our salvation. And we're thankful, Lord, today that he is the seed that was uh, portrayed uh, that would come from the woman who would crush the hold of Satan over us, the hold of sin over us. So, Lord, today, if there's someone here this morning who's not sure of the relationship with you, help them to realize that they, they need to confess their sin and turn to Christ as their Savior, and not continue to go their own way. And Lord, we're thankful again uh, for the relationship we can have with you because of Christ defeating our great foe, the devil. Bless us as we close now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.